Hello, and welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the Selling Insurance Across State Lines podcast of record for this week in health care law and policy. We are recording on September 20th, 2016. I am Frank Pasquale, and my co-host is Nicholas Terry, who unfortunately is sidelined today um, by a root canal. So um, unfortunately, in the history of Twill, this will be the first show without Nick, tragically. Um, we really miss you, Nick, and um, I am taking over for today. So today we're going to be talking with uh, Paul Lombardo, and Paul is the Regents Professor and Bobby Lee Cook Professor of Law at the Center for Health Law and Society at Georgia State University. And Paul has been a senior advisor to the Presidential Commissioner for the Study of Bioethical Issues. Um, He's an elected member of the American Law Institute. Um, He's done enormous, uh, just incredible research in the area of bioethics and the humanities, bioethics and law. And we welcome you, Paul. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Frank. So in thinking about today's podcast, I thought in terms of our opportunity to talk with Paul, we've got so many great articles that we could talk about. uh, And I wanted to open it up to sort of a broader discussion of the role of history and thinking about bioethics and then connecting it to some current affairs. And so, Paul, to start with, um, one of the things that's been in the news recently has been a lot of controversy over Harvard's uh, uh, participation or or Harvard scientists uh, getting money from the sugar industry and that potentially biasing uh, their research. Um, One of the pieces you're working on now is you're looking back further in time. That was from the 1960s. You're looking at uh, in the 1920s, Harvard had a bequest uh, to study eugenics and turned it down. And I was wondering if you could describe for our listeners, you know, the unusualness of that decision, contextualize it, and uh, describe why they decided that. Yes, this was a bequest from a surgeon, a particularly famous surgeon at the time named J. Ewing Mears. He had worked in Philadelphia, uh, was one of the founding members of the um, uh, Professional Association of Surgeons there, the College of Surgeons. Um, did had some money from his family, but also was a very successful practitioner himself and had taught at Harvard uh, and also at, in Pennsylvania. When he died, uh, he had no heirs. He was married, and he had a significant amount of money. Um, he left most of it in trust to his sister, but the, it was a life trust, and so when she died, it reverted to the other uh, people named in his will, and Harvard University was first on the list. He wanted Harvard to teach a course in eugenics, uh, and the amount of the uh, bequest was something around $60,000, which was a significant amount of money for 1918. And he said, uh, I want them to teach the surgical uh, approach to eugenics because, of course, he was a surgeon. He wanted them to teach how to sterilize people. Um, that was an idea that was becoming uh, fairly current at the time. Uh, there were probably 10 or 12 states that had laws allowing for sterilization surgery. And, and because he was a surgeon who did a a lot of urological surgeon uh, surgery. Uh, Mears was was quite interested in um, young doctors knowing how to do this, and so uh, he believed in eugenics. He had written a book on race betterment. Uh, was very active in the field, and uh, Harvard was faced with the with the issue of of getting uh, a, a chunk of money, uh, which they weren't sure they knew what to do with. 
they were interested in eugenics and saying they really covers a lot of ground here because Harvard had many people who taught eugenics, uh, including at, at the time of the bequest, the president, Charles Eliot, and then the next president who was uh, Lowell. Um, both of those people were very supportive of the general idea of eugenics, but they turned to the, the faculty and asked, you know, what should we do about this? It seems kind of restricted as a, a gift, and we want to make sure that we're not taking on some subject that we uh, that might be uh, discomforting some uh, sometime in the future. And the faculty responded. the The experts on the faculty responded. People like Edward East and others uh, saying, "Well, there's nothing wrong with eugenics, but this man has a very narrow view of it. It's all about surgery to him." And to the rest of us, it's really about uh, improving the race. And we probably don't want to be tied down to any particular uh, approach to this topic. So this is about academic freedom. We don't think you should take the money. There were two or three opinions like that. And so the Harvard president went back to the, to the board of directors of the Harvard Corporation and said, uh, tell them we don't need it. Well, this, uh, this didn't happen. The, 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 the story didn't play out completely until the mid late 1920s. Uh, about 1927, when the sister died, Mir's sister, and, and the money then reverted to Harvard. Uh, and Harvard said, no, we don't want it. And by that time, it had grown somewhat. And the media reports ranged from 60 to 80, in one case, even $100,000, they said, was available. Turns out that was a bit inflated, but the idea was pretty clear that Harvard was turning down a significant amount of money. Uh, and and so uh, the money then went uh, through the probate court to uh, another worthy institution, and it ended up at at the uh, um, the Thomas Jefferson um, Medical School there in Philadelphia. Uh, the probate court felt that Pennsylvania was the right place for this money to go, since that's where it came from, and that the uh, institution there in Philadelphia had made a good argument that they could teach this as well as anyone else. Uh, and they went, they took the money and then went on to have people uh, to fund a fellowship in, uh, uh, first person was a hematologist. And they never really did study, they never really taught eugenics as a, as a topic as much as they did, uh, give the money to people who were studying very, various features of heredity. So this became somewhat of a cause celeb briefly in the newspapers. Um, Mr. or Dr. Mears' money, uh, seemed to be rejected. Many in the, in the eugenics movement were very distressed about what had happened. And felt they'd gotten some bad press. And it seemed strange that Harvard would turn down money to teach eugenics since they had so many people on the faculty, people at that time like Ernest Hooten, a famous anthropologist who were very ready to teach eugenics. And so that's I, I, I played that story out in an article because it's a it's the kind of uh, it's the kind of story that is counterintuitive in one sense. Uh, it it uh, came out differently than when we would have expected it. And, it. and it gives us some insight into the controversial nature of eugenics, not as a, not as a subject that, that schools did not want to teach, most schools did, but as a subject that some people thought of in a different way and didn't want to be limited to one interpretation of. So uh, building on that, and I mean, I think that your description, Paul, is so interesting and your analysis of this case, and it just takes me in a couple of different directions. One of uh, thinking about social science in general and eugenics's place as, at the time, as this effort to bridge biomedical science with, say, anthropology, sociology, uh, history, uh, to give it some sort of uh, purpose – 
And it's very interesting to me because on the one hand, we see nowadays there are a lot of efforts to inform, say, the medical school education with social science, with uh, bioethics generally, with a more ethical uh, population level perspective. Uh, and yet, this was an early example that I think now uh, nearly everyone is deeply troubled by. And I'm wondering if you think, you know, are, are there ways in which we have made progress in avoiding the types of errors and the types of misjudgments that led to such a widespread embrace of bioethics, not just, or I'm sorry, a widespread embrace of um, eugenics, not just by the medical profession, but by the legal profession in, in Buck versus Bell at, at virtually the same time? The difficulty, um, you, you're Race Buck and Buck was the reason that I got interested in the Mears case because I was I was um, looking at records and co contemporaneous newspaper stories, etc., about Buck, and it turns out that commentators for a long time have said that there wasn't much uh, there wasn't much notice of Buck in the in the papers, for example, and until ten years ago, most of us thought that that was fairly true. I mean, if you studied local newspapers as I have, you knew there were some there was some notice there. But now it's pretty clear that there was massive notice. Uh, we have databases of newspapers all over the country now, and so it's clear that this sto the story got into the papers. As I was reading um, one of the few papers available many years ago, I saw the New York Times, and the back issue showed that the Buck case was was reported and a couple of days later inside the paper there was the Mears case so at the same the same time that the Supreme Court is considering Buck versus Bell you've got some people at Harvard saying we don't want money to teach eugenic sterilization so so the irony was kind of kind of a, an interesting one for me um, I think that um, to your larger question of have we learned anything um, the real problem with studying any event in history, and trying to figure out whether whether it's an event we could avoid um, sometime in the future is kind of the same problem that every um, either well or poorly done movie that has a time machine in it faces. <laughs> um, and you know, there's a there's a uh, commercial on now for some kind of uh, fast food where. A couple guys are sitting on the couch and the, they're eating this fast food. And the fellow says, well, you know, this is just like grandma used to make. Uh, and he rolls his eyes and the other guy shows up in a time machine and says, look, I've got grandma. And he said, no, I'm sorry, it's not grandma. Um, <laughs> we have it. And, and then and then I think there's a movie out now with the same kind of idea that it's, it's always the if you could go backward in history and change just one thing, maybe, you know, maybe we could switch the babies and Hitler wouldn't be born. Maybe we could do something else and war wouldn't occur. Um, the problem is that, that it, it, it really depends on your um, notion of history. To me, it's a series of in, incredibly complex interrelated events. And, and uh, it's not one row of dominoes. It's 10 million rows of dominoes. And you have to pick, decide which one you're going to take out. And you don't really know where it's going to end up. Um, so to put that in, in a more um, direct statement, um, there were lots of people at the time of the Buck case who didn't like the general idea of eugenics, specifically didn't like the idea of sterilization. There were lots of other people who um, did like the general idea of eugenics, thinking that it would be a great thing if we could, if the world was free of disease and free of poverty and free of crime. Um, maybe they didn't think you should uh, do anything terribly intrusive to make that happen, like sterilization. Uh, but they still believed, as I think we do today, that it'd be a wonderful world to live in if we didn't have 
the kinds of physical limitations that all of us have and the kinds of uh, the, the kinds of social problems that play out in, in crime or war. The, the, those general ideas are very, very much part of what made eugenics attractive to people. Um, I'm working on a paper right now that, that is uh, focused on how people from around 1910 until around 1940 used the term eugenics in advertising. And there is every kind of pitch made from doctor's office who say we have a eugenic practice to politicians who say I'm the eugenic candidate to baby toys, the eugenic developer, to uh, various foods that advertise or pharmaceuticals or over-the-counter cosmetics. Um, there, dolls, there's just an endless number of products that are sold using the term eugenics. Now, what does that mean? Well, to me, what it means is that eugenics was a term that had a positive valence. Most people, at, at least early on, most people had no uh, negative response when they heard that word. It meant to them health and well-being and, and happy babies. Um, it was much, much, much later that the term, um, after the the sterilization movement, um, really after the, not just after the Second World War, but really until until the 1960s and 70s in this country, that people started using that term in a, in a negative sense. So how do we look at history and go back and say, well, have we learned anything? Well, I think we have a, a general, uh, oh, some people at least have a general distaste with the kinds of heavy-handed intrusions into human rights and people's lives, particularly in the areas of reproduction, that eugenics uh, represented in the law. But we, the, the attitudes that motivated people who were passing those laws in, in many ways have not changed. The, both the attitudes that say, wouldn't it be great if we could abolish crime and, and disease? We still have those attitudes, as well as attitudes we may, may be much less proud of, which are discriminatory attitudes in terms of race, in terms of disability, in terms of gender, uh, in terms of intelligence. So I don't have a simple answer to have we improved. I think we we play out in various ways, um, similar similar ways of thinking. Um, we just don't call it eugenics. I really like those insights, Paul. And I think that there's, it reminds me of a couple things I saw recently. There was an article by a sociologist, Dalton Conley, with the provocative title, What If Tinder Showed Your IQ? And the idea behind this was that you could accelerate assortative mating uh, by virtue of verified IQ scores on Tinder. He was provoked to write this by a science article on apparently there are these now polygenic scores that predict educational attainment uh, that are larger and larger databases. Uh, geneticists are trying to correlate uh, education attainment that has been documented with certain aspects of, uh, of genes. And I think that this is so interesting because you're so right to say that like it can be a rebranding issue. It's something that comes up for me often in the realm of technology where I see, you know, maybe five years ago, people were talking about predictive analytics and then that the bloom went off that rose a little bit and then it became big data. And then there was a challenge to what does that mean? And now machine learning is the hot term and who knows what it will be in two or three years. So this attention to the branding, I think, really is a very important part of the, the story. 
I mean, when you look back on some of these advertisements, is your sense that, like, is there, are you looking ultimately for a turning point at which it stops being a positive term? Do you think that, like, for example, looking at some of the digital humanities research that's been enabled by Google Ngram, that we could, say, look at a big enough database and see when this stopped? Um, Or is your concern more like when it began and why it began? Well, both. I mean, I actually started um, uh, this inquiry about advertising by using Google Ngram and trying to figure out when is this term possible, po- positive? When does it take on? When does it disappear, for for example? And with with uh, the, the big data kinds of screens like Google Ngram, you can find it. You can see where people quit using it and when they start using it again. When they start using it for the second wave, which to me is in the in the 1970s mostly, um, it's almost always negative. Um, so I'm I am interested in the back and forth, and like you, I watch various fields uh, change their spots. I mean, we're currently I'm supposed to be at a, giving a talk later this week about the history of neuroscience, and what strikes me about what we're doing now in terms of the brain initiative or all of the the focus on neuroethics is essentially asking questions that we've been asking for a long time. I teach mental health law, um, and when I, I, I probably could retitle it uh, Neuroscience and the Law if I wanted to, and I wouldn't have to change more than two or three classes. Uh, the same issues are there. We're still talking about cognition and consent and, and people's capacity to understand things and ways in which we can predict people's behavior and all that. So, um, yeah, rebranding definitely goes on. We're all involved in it, and, uh, and we all watch it happening. I'm interested both in how we, why do we rebrand? Sometimes it's an innocuous reason. Sometimes it's just because the, the title on the paper that we're sending in would probably sound better if we had a new title. Um, but oftentimes I think it's it's uh, an attempt to, uh, it is sometimes at least a t- an attempt to obfuscate the bad things, the bad tastes that come from some earlier uh, kinds of uh, uh, forays into public policy. The focus on um, behavior that and the and the and the use of various kinds of intelligence tests or other instruments um, went through a, a, a bumpy spot in the 1960s and 70s and 80s and and we realized the utility of some of those tests but we're we'd rather we'd rather not focus on them in the way in which they became negative so so talking about for example behavioral genetics except for those people in the field has less cachet than than re re uh, spinning that and using a different term to talk about similar ideas. How much do how much is heredity somehow driven by underlying uh, genetic substrates as opposed to something else? So I don't. I mean, I guess it's not an either or to me. It's not a. It's not a. I, I really, as a historian, I want to understand where these ideas came from. Um, I'm usually um, surprised at what I find, um, but I'm rarely surprised when they resurface. I suppose it just takes a, a very uh, either either a heightened sense or a very perverse sense of irony to get some appreciation out of that. <laughs> no, I completely agree with that. I see that a lot. I mean, another area that I'm particularly interested in is uh, behaviorism and the sort of rise and fall and rise again of, or maybe the waves of behaviorism that affect both psychology and you know allied disciplines of operations research or management and some of these other areas. And I think, you know, we see a lot of resurgence. I, mean, I, I think there was a big behaviorist moment with B.F. Skinner and 
others, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and then something beat that back. And then now it's sort of reviving with uh, big data. I think one of the reasons why it's also reviving, and this gets into another uh, recent uh, project of yours, I think, for the uh, International Academy of Law and Mental Health, is your history of the psychograph, which apparently was a uh, a, phrenolo- a phrenological tool that uh, that said it could thoroughly and accurately measure the powers of intellect, affect, and will. And how did this thing sort of take off? How has this uh, psychograph become a a major force in assessing human character and intellect? Well, like a lot of things, it it was um, it was someone's attempt to make money. And the psychograph <laughs> itself um, was a technology um, which which was made visual in some wonderfully detailed ads that would allow you to sit down and be measured. And the ad said things like, the power of science brings a new gift to man. Um, the psychograph analysis is the art which allows for pow- the intellect, affect, and will to be thoroughly and accurately measured. Uh, it is a natural and practical art with a scientific foundation. Now, this tool um, looks like a. It looks like the kind of thing that one used to see in ta- in in, in uh, comedies that had pictures of uh, people in hair salons. Uh, a large kind of uh, cone that went over your head, like a, <laughs> like a hair dryer. Um, always, always, always showing men with uh, suits on and ties who were having this thing put on their head. And the the company in Minneapolis uh, developed it, it for. Some some years before they actually marketed it, they, there was a patent in 1905 um, from a man from Wisconsin, and the patent was for the psychograph, which was supposed to be used for purposes of character analysis. Um, it it was made up of more than um, almost 2,000 parts. It said that was part of the marketing. You know, it's got a lot of parts. Must be good. Um, and it was supposed to read 32 different faculties of character on a five-point scale. And the patent itself said the ad ran to 124 crowded pages. Well, the message here was pretty clear from the marketing point of view. And that was that we've got this tool that will do a lot for you. And it will do it in a, in a way that you can't do it for yourself. Back in the old days, they say, and they're saying this in the 1930s, um, back in the old days, we had to have people that were trained to to feel the bumps on your head. That's what phrenology was about, just feeling the bumps on your head. Well, that's old. That's no good. It's That's too inexact. That requires a, you know, some human being to make a lot of guesses. But now we've got science, meaning we've got a, we've got a technology, and the technology will give us objective truth. Um, the ads had statistics in them with big bold letters saying statistics. I mean, it's a strange thing, but that's what they said. And they said that you know, they could give you a scale. They had come up with a set of numbers to to uh, attribute to your intellect and your character and these other things that they said they were measuring. Um, it was it was used for supposed to be used for vocational counseling. Oddly enough, just as phrenology had been used a century earlier. Um, the psychograph didn't last very long. There were only something like 30 of them built, uh, and then they ran into the Depression, and so that, that kind of killed it off. But they seemed to be um, used as a kind of novelty during the Depression as a way of building traffic into a theater or a, 
uh, a showroom. Um, tell people you had a psychograph. They could come in. You might you might print out their results and tell them what their character was. A kind of mind reading um, for the Depression era. My point in in finding this 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 thing and the finding for me just. A, Involved finding a newspaper article that had the ad, and then and then realizing that since it was patented, there would be a patent on file, and then looking that up. Um, but my point was just to try to figure out what the connection was between um, an inflated claims of science, which later get deflated by facts. Uh, and how these claims play out both in popular culture and then in the law. Um, this is at a time when people very much want to develop a uh, not a mind-reading tool, but a lie-detecting tool. And it was in looking at lie-detecting technology that I, that I stumbled on this. Uh, and I realized that, that like other parts of, of the law, um, and certainly the parts that I've studied in terms of genetics and eugenics, um, we lawyers really, really want... Um, to be able to um, reach some kind of objective finality, or at least have experts who can say they have. And and if you can have an expert who makes this kind of claim, that's one uh, authoritative statement. But if the expert has a piece of equipment that has shiny knobs and lights and, and bulbs and graphs, that's better. And then they can then step away and say, you know, I'm not making this up. It's right out of the machine. So our our passion for the truth and the vehicle of the truth being objective science, which is uh, mechanized in some way, that's something that's been around for quite a while. And, and we still see it today, um, often, often really to our detriment, I think. Because we just want to, we want to be able to rely on the machines as if the machines created themselves. Ah, I, I have so many connections with that work, uh, Paul. I mean, I, I think that is so true, uh, and I see it in so many aspects of today's society. I mean, I think that your first point of, uh, I think, agreement in terms of your putting your finger on some really real insecurities in law, in terms of wanting to have outside experts to deliver sort of this final scientific judgment, it reminds me a bit of uh, this lecture that Nicholas Rose gave um, about the increasing demand for using a lot of fMRI and other imagery. And he dismissed some of it as blobology in the sense that, you know, you show a blob, a certain red blob in the brain and you go, ah, that's what shows that the person is guilty or something. <laughs> and apparently there is one case in India where this was really determinative or something. And then there's worry that, you know, if you don't have sensitive, critical uh, judgment about the spread of this technology, it really could be rooted in uh, the way that another book called, I think, Neuromania uh, describes as being really ungrounded and unchallengeable. And the worry also becomes that, you know, if you look at some of um, the work on, say, pain measurement, there's a lot of demand in the disability context, other contexts for measures of pain that would be somehow much more objective than any narrative report that's given. And then finally, I see this sort of desire in something that's called the fake bad score, where in order to find malingerers, um, defense lawyers for large firms would use a certain questionnaire and try to show missed correlations or mal uh, mismatches between people's responses to certain questions. So I think that this is, it's really helpful and it's such a good historical awareness that you're giving us 
of the times in the past when certain devices were hailed by everyone as being scientific. And now with the fullness of time, we can really look back and say, wait a second, and try to figure out, you know, maybe this is even a dynamic like uh, that that book about the, the madness of crowds, you know, that there are certain ways in which something just takes root and becomes sort of acclaimed as a scientific authority when it, it doesn't deserve that level of deference. And it's, it, this is a very hard thing to know, and I think it's a crossover between um, our work in the law, but also uh, a, a desire to understand what – I mean, the law is, is, is this vessel that captures everything in society. Um, sometimes it captures it literally, <laughs> and, then we, <laughs> yes. and then we complain about it. Uh, but, but, I mean, it, it, it absorbs it. It's a sponge. It absorbs everything that's going on. And, and uh, um, I, I think that people outside of the law often think of what, what lawyers do as being an exact science and and something that allows you to make great precise predictions and i think of course it's silly we we probably can in in the easy cases maybe guess which direction a case is going um but in the hard cases uh, along the edges and of course all the ones along the edges are hard because we don't know which rules to apply. Um, we don't really do much better at guessing than anyone else would. And the, the problem that I have with um, the general the general issue of what do you think about technology uh, and how do you talk about technology historically is that I'm a, I'm very much a, um, excited by new technologies. Um, I'm very much excited, for example, in the area of neuroscience. I got to listen to um, as part of the President's Commission work, I got to listen to some of the really the greatest neuroscientists in the country, in the world for that matter, who are doing extraordinary things. Um, but the takeaway that I got from them, even though I was wowed by the way they were able to uh, operate on people and their brains down to some tiny, you know, microscopic levels, the takeaway from them was um, we can do this, but we still are not sure when we should do it and how often we should do it or uh, how well it will work. We don't really understand what's going on. And this is similar to what, what I saw happening, to use one example from the mental health community, the desire to say we've got a pill that will fix your illness, um, and then the further desire to say, well, we, we can find the gene that drives your illness. Um, and, and studying that field, I found that the real experts uh, the psych psychiatric geneticist would say, we'd really like to, and we found some correlations, but boy, this stuff is still so complex that we really don't understand how it works, and we can't predict, you know, we there's no one gene, there are no 10 genes for most diseases. There are maybe thousands of genes with thousands of interactions and other things we don't even understand. So I think there, there's a call. I mean, I think there's a need for, in the light of a, a media world in which everything is inflated immediately, every new insight is blown up, and everybody wants to sell something, whether it's a, a piece of equipment or a new app or their own expertise. Um, I think there's two things that we are in short supply are uh, perspective and humility. Um, the perspective that realizes that every reductive argument uh, is going to be oversimplified and the humility to realize that, that uh, whatever we've figured out today, there's probably a lot left that we don't understand about human behavior, particularly about the human brain. Yes, yes. I'm reminded of this uh, John Horgan book, I think, called The Undiscovered Mind, How the Mind Defies Replication, Medication, and Explanation. And it's a wonderful sort of book-length treatment 
of various points at which there was assumed that we were on the verge of some really great breakthrough and uh, how frustrated uh, those proposing or pr promoting that type of breakthrough eventually became. I mean, I'm wondering in terms of the your time on the President's uh, Bioethics Commission, what were some of the big achievements of the commission and what do you think are sort of the overarching um, issues that are going to be facing the next administration, be it the Clinton or the Trump uh, Bioethics Commission? Well, the the I'm, I'm fairly prejudiced in that regard because um, – the commission did a number of reports, a dozen or so, in um, uh, in, in areas as 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 wide as uh, looking at uh, neuroscience. Uh, a couple major reports on genetics. Um, the the report that I'm the most proud of is the one that I that I spent the most time on myself because it was the one about the Guatemala experiments. Um, we had a terrific staff of people and were able to get information from federal agencies and archives all around the world, um, and to try to reconstruct the story which had broken in the news uh, earlier and, and, and be able to dig down, again, with the kind of resources that any, no individual scholar has, uh, to dig down and see what happened, how many people were involved, who, the, who were they, um, what about the, the doctors and the scientists who were involved um, what about the political context at the time? How did this fit into America's understanding of research in wartime and just after the Second World War? So uh, Ethically Impossible, which was the name of that report, is the one that uh, stands out to me. And, that, and that's probably because it is about history. It is about the, the law of research regulation, ultimately. And, and it also makes us focus on um, what do we do not for times where things are settled and we're all comfortable, but what do we do in wartime? Uh, what do we do when we think that uh, um, that everyone's life is on the line? How do we bend the rules or should we ever? You know, and these are these are issues that never go away. Uh, they come up every time. You know, they're, they're, they're alive right now. You know, do we respond? Do we throw away the ethics book when it comes to uh, people we capture and we think are are potential terrorists. Do we do we throw away the Constitution and say, well, it's time for us to get you know to to not be so mamby pamby about these things? And I think my own take on it is that um, historians of the future, as long as those attitudes are current, historians of the future will have plenty to work with. Um, either because they'll find things that were done in secret, as, for example, the Guatemala syphilis experiments were done in secret by the public health service, um, or they'll find things that were done in the open um, and that uh, are contradictory of the values that we say we we hold dear. Um, I don't I don't expect that uh, human nature will somehow become uh, completely different in future generations than it is right now. And with that very wise perspective on the past, present, and ongoing relevance of bioethics uh, to our understanding of both medical ethics and health law and policy, uh, that was the week in health. And I want to thank you so much, Paul, for this terrific interview. I really appreciate your sharing your expertise with our listeners. Uh, thank you, Frank. And so to close up for today's podcast, um, we ask you to please uh, rank or rate The Week in Health Law on iTunes. It really helps people discover the show. Um, also, please, on Twitter, come on out and follow at Week in Health Law or at Nicholas Terry, no H, N-I-C-O, uh, Terry, or me at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. And we wish you all a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>